Hello and welcome back to the fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 66 called Once Upon a Time in Noricum. In the last episode, we covered the final demise of the Western Empire in 476 when Odoacer forced the abdication of Romulus Augustulus, the little Augustus, so named not only because he was only about 15 years old, but also because he had absolutely no power. Romulus Augustulus's name echoed two of the greatest names in Roman history, Romulus the mythical founder of Rome, and Augustus, the first and greatest of the Roman emperors. But it was a hollow echo. The Roman Empire now bore no resemblance at all to the world of Augustus. Germans ruled Italy in the great city of Rome. Constantinople was the beating heart of what remained of the Roman Empire, and the eastern half of the Mediterranean, which was mainly Greek and not Latin-speaking, would now take up the baton of Roman history. So far, this podcast has focused almost entirely on political, military, economic and climate history. I've said little about what life for the ordinary person was like. One reason is that we have almost no literary records of what life was actually like for ordinary people in this tumultuous time, although the letters of Sidonius Apollinaris give us an idea of life for aristocratic senators in Gaul and Italy, when it comes to ordinary people, the literary historical record is almost completely silent. Except, that is, for one extraordinary document that provides a fascinating insight into a small frontier region of the Western Empire as it adapted to imperial collapse. This document, which has fortunately survived from when it was written in 511, is the life of Saint Severinus. Severinus was a holy man in the tradition of holy men that developed in the late Roman Empire, that is, an utterly devout Christian who wandered the roads, helping the poor and sick, assisted by an ability to work miracles courtesy of his devotion to God. The life was not written by Severinus himself, but by a monk called Eugippius who wanted to record the good deeds of the saint. The account begins at the time of Attila's death in 453 and lasts until Severinus died nearly 30 years later in 482. Thus we have a vivid vignette of the last days of the Western Empire in a small, fairly remote location. That location was Noricum in what is now Lower Austria, a beautiful mountainous landscape nestling between the Alps and the Upper Danube. Enter Severinus, a wandering holy man from the faraway east. We're not told exactly from where, but probably Egypt or Syria, who could perform miracles and spoke perfect Latin. We get a vivid picture of the last days of the regular Roman army. When Severinus arrived in Noricum, he found the remnants of the Roman legion still at their posts, guarding the frontier wall along the Danube. But something was very wrong. They hadn't been paid for a long time. So a small unit of soldiers set out for Italy to find out what was going on. But they met a sticky end, as described, quote, So long as the Roman Empire lasted, soldiers were maintained in many towns at the public expense to guard the frontier wall. When this arrangement ceased, the regiments of soldiers disbanded and the wall fell into disrepair. 
However, the garrison stationed at Batavis in Noricum continued to hold out. When they stopped receiving their pay, a group of soldiers went to Italy, but they were killed by the barbarians, although no one in Noricum knew that. One day, when St Severinus was reading, he suddenly closed his book and began to sigh and to weep. He told those who were present to go at once to the inn beside the river, which he said was now red with human blood. There they found the dead bodies of the soldiers who'd gone to Italy, washed ashore by the current of the river. End quote. The point of the story was to highlight the omniscient powers of St Severinus, who knew what had happened to the soldiers before anyone else, and who had a knack of predicting when and where the next barbarian attack would occur. But for the historian, it paints a vivid picture of the last Roman soldiers looking out from their watchtowers and hoping that somehow they would hear the blare of bugles announcing reinforcements. When all hope was gone, as mentioned above, the legions simply disbanded. Exactly where they went isn't clear. It seems likely that some of them stayed with the locals, especially if they'd married local women, while perhaps others looked to find a new life elsewhere. The evidence for this is the mention in the life that the Noricans fortified their settlements and established a string of castella or castles to defend themselves. Presumably this meant some of the regular Roman army became a sort of local militia. To return to Severinus's story, he finds the locals clinging on to the Roman order that had existed for centuries, but struggling to survive the growing pressure from the complete breakdown of law and order and the frequent barbarian incursions. This is probably what had happened in Britain nearly 50 years before places like Noricum. The result was a time of chaos. There was almost constant raiding by barbarians, the Heruli, Alemanni, Ostrogoths and Rugi, all of whom had been part of Attila's empire and were now fighting each other, came and went raiding and pillaging the Roman towns in Noricum. The key point from the historical perspective was that with the Roman army gone, life for ordinary people was transformed, and very much for the worse. No longer did they live in a prosperous land connected to a vast empire and marketplace by well-made roads, with its inhabitants well-fed, safe and educated. Suddenly, they were instead transported into a nightmarish world of constant danger, where if you ventured out from your fortified settlement even at midday to pick fruit, you might be captured by marauding barbarians. The life describes how whole settlements could suddenly disappear overnight, their inhabitants slaughtered or enslaved. In the midst of this twilight world, we read how St Severinus gained the respect of the Noricans for his good deeds and his magical powers. In particular, he helped to win over the local barbarians in the form of the Rugi, who were sometimes paid to protect the Noricans against the Ostrogoths and others. 
The life abounds with morality stories. For example, the king of the Rugi, Philetheus, is impressed with Severinus and accepts him as his spiritual leader, but his feisty wife, Gizo, is not so sure. She's more interested in extorting gold from the Noricans to make her jewellery. But when Severinus saves the life of her adventurous little son, Fredericus, in a dangerous escapade, she's deeply grateful and he uses the opportunity to confront Front her, saying, quote, Gizo, which lovest thou the more, your husband or gold and silver? And when she answered that, of course, she prized her husband above all riches, the man of God, in his wisdom, continued, Therefore cease to oppress the innocent, lest their affliction result in the destruction of your power. End quote. The proud queen humbly promised to mend her ways. So, we see St. Severinus wandering through Noricum, reminding people of their moral duty and of the divine favour they'll receive if they do, until, quote, while the towns of Riverside Noricum yet stood and hardly a castle escaped the attacks of the barbarians, the fame and reputation of St. Severinus shone so brightly that the castles vied with each other in inviting his company and protection, believing that no misfortune would happen to them in his presence. End quote. But while for Eugippius the point of the life of St. Severinus lay in demonstrating the importance of a pious life, for us we have a fascinating picture of the collapse of Roman society. And that collapse was truly frightening, for what we are really witness to is the end of civilization, as the inhabitants of the Roman Empire knew it at least. A life of material prosperity had been replaced by a life of fear and deprivation in which religion offered a superstitious hope for protection. And that view is supported by the archaeological record. The best way of measuring the effect of the fall of the Western Empire on ordinary people is to compare the archaeological record before and after it fell. And one distinguished archaeologist has done just that by comparing the four main surviving artefacts of Roman civilization. Pottery, roof tiles, coinage, and graffiti. His analysis is highly informative. In many archaeological digs from Britain to Africa, he sees a fundamental change in living conditions that took place in the West in the 5th century and in the East later on in the 7th century. In the West, the Romans led a life of relative comfort and even of luxury until the early 5th century. The sheer volume of finds of Roman pottery, roof tiles and coins evidences this. But this archaeological treasure trove comes to an abrupt end in the 5th century in the West. It wasn't until the beginning of the modern era in the 15th and 16th centuries that a similar quantity of archaeological finds comparable with those from ancient Rome began again. And we're not just talking about quantity, but also quality. For example, Roman pottery was consistently high quality. Light and smooth to the touch and very tough, it was amazingly modern and was mass-produced in centres across the empire, which exported their products to its remotest corners. Archaeological discoveries show it was humble villages and isolated farmsteads which enjoyed the use of this superb pottery just as much as the great urban centres. 
Remains of roof tiles are equally impressive. Almost all Roman buildings had sturdy and high-quality roof tiles, from agricultural sheds and barns to temples and basilicas. They protected Roman livestock from the wind and rain just as much as their human owners. Yet starting in the 5th century in the West, roof tiles almost disappeared from more humble dwellings for over a thousand years. Thatched roofs replaced tiled ones, a regression only favoured as a fashion statement today, since a thatched roof is far inferior to a tiled one, requiring remaking every 30 years compared to hundreds of years for well-made tiled roofs. And even then, it's normally less successful at keeping out wind and rain. Coinage was another victim of the fall of Rome in the 5th century. Until then, Roman coins were abundant and available in three metals, gold, silver and copper. But in the West, during the 5th and 6th centuries, coins disappeared. Some of the new Germanic kingdoms in the West minted them for a short time, more for prestige than for economic purposes. But by the 7th century, coinage had all but disappeared. Surviving remains of graffiti also provide us with an insight into the scale of change for ordinary people. Graffiti was written to be read, and the abundance of graffiti found in Pompeii, for example, which was destroyed by the fatal eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79, suggests ordinary Romans were highly literate. Pompeii's walls were covered in graffiti, some of it vulgar, but much of it was nuanced and amusing, such as with the following famous inscription found four times in the city, quote, Wall, I admire you for not collapsing in ruins when you have to support so much tedious writing on you, end quote. Although Pompeii remains our only source of Roman graffiti, we can assume that it was widespread in Roman towns and cities until the 5th century, after which the Germanic invasions resulted in a staggering loss of literacy, so much so that during most of the Middle Ages, literacy was almost entirely confined to just monks. We should also acknowledge that not all the empire's inhabitants lived a life of comfort before its fall. Roman society comprised haves and have-nots. There was a substantial slave population in both halves of the empire whose lives are poorly documented and about whom we know very little. Common sense would suggest that while some slaves led lives of unimaginable suffering, such as those labouring until they dropped dead in mines, quarries and on the vast agricultural estates of the wealthy, others probably lived in relative comfort, such as domestic servants, many of whom were cooks, hairdressers and teachers. We also know there was an underclass of peasants happy to rise in rebellion when the central authority of the empire collapsed. These are well documented in Gaul, where they were called the Bagodi, meaning warriors in Gallic, and comprised lawless peasantry and slaves who turned to pillage and plunder just as violently and destructively as the barbarians. Nevertheless, the Bagodi were a minority, and for the great majority of the empire's inhabitants in the West, the fall of Rome was a decidedly bad thing. One conspicuous example of this was 5th century Britain. As mentioned, Noricum in the 460s and 70s was probably similar to Britain 50 years earlier in the 410s. When Constantine III rebelled against the Emperor Honorius in late 406, he crossed over to Gaul with the British legions, never to return. 
Abandoned, Britain declared its independence from Rome in 409, and thereafter we have no idea what happened on the island. About the only thing mentioned in Roman sources is that some of the wealthier Britons fled across the channel to Armorica, which became known as Brittany, the land occupied by the Britons, the name it still keeps in modern France. Apart from that, there's almost no surviving source material covering the period from 410 to 600, although by 600 the sources start again and show that the Anglo-Saxons dominated most of central and eastern England. What happened to the Romano-Britons is a mystery. The absence of almost any archaeological records suggests Britain reverted to a prehistoric level of society, less advanced than before the Romans arrived, when there had been a flourishing pottery industry, trade with Gaul, and even the minting of native silver coins. What little has survived shows the art of making pottery on a wheel completely vanished in the early 5th century and wasn't reintroduced for almost 300 years. Building in mortared stone or brick also disappeared. No coinage was minted. There's no evidence of any trade. This dystopian post-Roman future is the stuff of horror stories and a grim reminder of what can happen when a sophisticated economy reliant on specialisation is suddenly cast adrift to survive on its own. We in the 21st century, with our hugely complex and specialised global economy, would do well to heed the warning of what happened in 5th century Britain. But the example of Britain was extreme, even by 5th century Roman standards, and it's also important to emphasise that the experiences of the two halves of the Roman Empire were quite different, a subject we'll return to in the later episodes in this podcast. Although the Western economy collapsed in the 5th century, its eastern cousin prospered until the Arab invasions of the 7th century reduced it to a state similar to that of the West. In short, when Britain was reverting to a prehistoric lifestyle, Roman civilization in the eastern Mediterranean was booming. In conclusion, the archaeological record after the sack of Rome suggests that in the West, a life of relative luxury continued only for a small minority such as wealthy landowners, clerics, aristocrats and the ruling elites. For most people, the fall of the Western Empire plunged them back into a primitive lifestyle not experienced for centuries, an uncertain life of insanitary dwellings, undernourishment and the absence of quality manufactured goods. So, perhaps we can see St Severinus's spiritual guidance as a consolation for the collapse of civilization. Religion, in the controversial words of Karl Marx, was, quote, the opium of the people, designed to ease their material suffering. Once upon a time in Noricum, it seems a holy man brought that message.
And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And as I mentioned last week, we've come to a pivotal point in this podcast, which is the end of the Western Empire. But you'll be glad to hear it's definitely not the end of the podcast, since it's about the fall of the Roman Empire. And as you all know, the Roman Empire continued in the East for a long time. Quite how long is, of course, the subject of much debate. Edward Gibbon thought it was right up until 1453 when the Ottoman Turks blasted a hole in the walls of Constantinople and made it their capital city. But I'm not so sure the small state that existed around Constantinople at that time really had much to do with the Roman Empire. So I don't think I'll be taking the podcast all the way up until then, but I'll certainly be covering the Emperor Justinian's reconquest of the West in the 6th century, which I regard as a thoroughly Roman venture. But before we turn to that exciting story, I need to spend some time on my third Roman book, which will cover what we've been talking about in the last 20 episodes. So the next episode will be about the rise of the Eastern Roman Empire, and it will be in a month's time on the 20th. 29th of July. And in the meantime, please do check out my new book, The Fall of Rome. And if you want a free ebook, please visit my new website at nickholmesauthor.com, where you'll find my first book called The Byzantine World War about the decline of the Byzantine Empire and the start of the Crusades. And if you like this podcast, I guarantee you'll like that book. Thanks for listening and see you next time.